listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier. And today we have a very special guest, Terry Wiegand. Terry is an actor, producer, solo performer, and arts educator based out of Brooklyn, New York. She will be performing the solo play Bonita by Elizabeth Heffron at the United Solo Theater Festival in New York City on November 6th and 9th. And I got to work with Terry a few weeks ago down at Urbanite Theater. Terry, thanks so much for being on Beckett's Babies. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Welcome to our show where we ask the tough questions. <laughs> That's right. I'm ready. I'm ready. So one of the first questions we like to ask our guests is your earliest memory. Uh, what was your life like before the theater? Before the theater. Well, I was thinking about this this week, and most of my early memories all revolve around my yard that I, <laughs> from the house that I grew up in. We had like some apple trees in the back. We had a peach tree. We had an old swing set that was falling apart, and, and we regularly got tetanus shots. Um, oh my gosh. But <laughs> my mom was a nurse, it was fine. Um, and I was trying to figure out particular memories, and there are a couple that are sticking in my mind around that swing set and playing. But there's this uh, did you ever see the Haley Mills version of The Parent Trap? Yes, amazing movie. Mm-hmm. So good. And there's a point, a part in it where she is sniffing her grandfather's jacket, and he goes, What are you doing? And uh, she said, <laughs> I'm making a memory. Uh, <laughs> And I just, I remember consciously doing that a lot as a kid, like the fear of not remembering something was so big. So I would, I would stop whatever I was doing and going, you were here right now at this time doing this. Whoa. Yeah. So it was strange, but you know, sometimes I don't know if those were real because sometimes I've, I've had dreams and said, this really happened when I was a kid. And my mother goes, no, the school didn't burn down. so now I don't know what is real and what was not but most of it revolved around playing in the yard and where did you grow up I grew up in a tiny town called Manson Washington in the middle of uh, rural Washington state cool Uh, population 2000 tiny 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 this is neither here nor there but I was just reading about the Cascadia subduction zone which is the earthquake fault that lies along the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. No, Seattle's going to pancake at some point. There was a whole New York (laughs) Times article about it. Yeah, it's so scary. Yeah, I've been there when there's been earthquakes before. Like hurricanes, I know nothing about, but earthquakes, Mm -hmm. I've done. Yeah. And Sarah, you're from from LA. You've done it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I did a lot of those drills, earthquake drills, all through my life. (laughs) Uh, I don't think they'll save your life, but um, (laughs) I'll try it. (laughs) They give you peace of mind. What do you do in an earthquake drill? In case any of our listeners are wondering, what are you supposed to do in an earthquake drill? Uh, Well, if you're in a classroom, you go under a desk and... (laughs) <laughs> Look at your friend next to you and just gossip. <laughs> there's there's also something with doorways. Doorways, and yeah. I can't remember. Are you supposed to go under a doorway or avoid a doorway? 
I think it's. I think you're supposed to stand under. in the doorway. Yeah, like that would make sense. Because that way, if the wall falls, it won't mm-hmm. fall on you because you're in the hole where the door goes. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd do very well in an earthquake. In school. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry, um, this is a really clunky segue, but on that note, how did you discover <laughs> theater? <laughs> so. Um, the the town that I grew up in, it's part of Lake Chelan, and they have the Lake Chelan Community Players, or the, the Chelan Valley Players, I think they're called. And every year they would do a big musical production. And the very first play I ever saw was The Wizard of Oz, and my sister was one of the munchkins. Amazing. And, but my mother was the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. So I remember seeing her after the show and she's all painted green and she's got the big prosthetic nose and like long black fingernails and it scared the crap out of me. And she had to like take the nose off and say, it's just me. But it, it was, I don't know, it was really cool to yeah. to see. I was, you know, sitting on the ground in the Legion Hall just watching them. Mm-hmm. But my mother, she would do something every single night. She had her own little ad lib. And I just thought it was the funniest thing I had ever heard. And I think that might've been what hooked me in is every day she would like cackle at the munchkins. And at the end she would go, just call me mom. (laughs) I was like, that is so funny. My mother's so funny. I was just wondering, did she do a lot of shows? That was the last one that she did um, because I think she realized how tough it is to do plays, especially on a volunteer basis yeah. uh, when you've got three young children at home. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But we kept doing them. Like we we did Cinderella and Babes in Toyland. And I was a super shy kid, so it was hard to get me up there. But once I was up there, I really enjoyed it. I find that very difficult to believe. Uh, yeah. Oh, I was painfully shy. I used to hide underneath my mom's skirt in public. Oh my gosh. Don't look at me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So do you have um, creative people in your family? Like does any extended family do arts or theater? Oh, yeah. 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 So my dad is a landscape painter. He's a plein air painter. And that's all he's ever done my whole life. And uh, my sister's a writer. My mother is an incredible quilter. Um, and it was always really encouraged when we grew up. I think my dad had to to deal with naysayers early in his career saying, what are you doing? Painting these pictures. And it's like, I'm doing the thing that I have to do. Uh, so I feel really fortunate in that I never had to justify what I wanted to do to mm-hmm. my parents. I, I feel like I have a lot of friends that really had to push up against, um, you know, a little skepticism. It's not an easy life, the artist's life. And I think that they're trying to protect their children. But um, mm-hmm. I, I just never had to to worry about them um, saying no, because <laughs> I wasn't going to listen to it anyway. <laughs> So what inspired you to to keep performing? And, you know, and second part of that question is, you know, what do you th- think makes theater different from 
all the other art forms? So I think the reason that I wanted to keep doing it, um, (laughs) I did a production of A Christmas Carol when I was 10. And after the show, a friend came up to my mother and was very complimentary about the things that I was doing in it. They just said something like, she's a natural. And then my mother relayed that back to me. So (laughs) really, I ended up doing it just out of the positive validation that I got from Mm. other people. And who are Um, you playing in Christmas? I was playing, I think I was playing Martha. Okay. um, Martha Cratchit and Fanny, his sister. Yeah. Cool. It was, it was a fun show, but I, I had never, up until that time, I had never really consciously found something that I loved that I might have a sort of aptitude for. And I, I I mean, I, (laughs) words of positive reinforcement might be my love language. (laughs) I react well to that. Um, And the thing that makes it so different for me is, I mean, theater only exists in time and space. Mm. It's, you have to be in this place together with these people at this time. And it's never going to exist again in this way. Even if we're doing the show the next night, it's a whole different group of people. And, and it's, it's this shared communal experience that's really exciting for me. Um, and there's that article that came out recently that was saying that audiences – heart rates actually sync up together when they're watching a play. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. And you just can't get that when you like have you ever tried to watch a play on film? Yes, mm. it's terrible. Oh, yeah, it just it just doesn't it doesn't work. Cuz you have to be in there with those people mm. syncing up together. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. I'm going to think about that for a while. I have to read the rest of the article. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So, so Terry, how do you approach new work as opposed to plays that have been around for a while? I know you're a teacher too, so I'm wondering if this is something you talk about with your students. Yeah, I, um, I was thinking about new work versus older work. And when I first started studying Shakespeare in school, um, the teacher said that what you have to do is just operate under the, the assumption that Shakespeare was a genius. Mm-hmm. And so everything was written down there for a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do when approaching a new play by someone that I'm working on is assume that they're a genius and everything was there for a reason. So you say it exactly as it's there and then they're going to be listening to it and hearing, oh, Maybe that rhythm is a little bit off, but I, I can't be the one to tell them that. Oh, that's interesting. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So I just need to uh, say what's on the page in the way that they mm-hmm. they intended it, or my uh, my interpretation of their intention, mm-hmm. and then uh, trust that if it needs to be changed, that's what they're gonna do. Well, that's their job. That's not my job. Hmm. But I love working on new plays. It's super exciting. And I actually, speaking of Shakespeare and new plays, uh, 
This summer, I got to be a part of a really cool project called the Play on Shakespeare Festival in New York. And it was a collaboration between Oregon Shakespeare Festival and the Classic Stage Company in New York. And uh, Louis Douthat, she, uh, she commissioned 36 playwrights to reimagine uh, and translate all 39 Shakespeare plays Whoa. using a bit more updated language. You had to honor the meter, um, but the idea was to carry it forth wow. to uh, a modern audience whose ears might not be attuned to that language. Mm-hmm. Um, it was such a cool process. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, and so you, so you worked on one of them? Yeah, I got to work on five of them. They they had a huge acting company, and every week you would come in and work on a new play uh, with a new writer, a new wow. dramaturg, and a new director. And for three days, you would you would play with the text, and sometimes they would make cuts. Uh, and then at the end of it, we would do full staged readings of the pieces in New York. Do you ever find yourself? adapting yourself to that writer or to the player because I'm, I'm guessing a lot of writers are so different and how they write or approach things do you ever find yourself adapting in certain ways oh absolutely yeah um because it, it feels like every writer has a certain rhythm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that and I and I hear things kind of um yeah rhythmically or musically um as I'm saying the text out loud and and every single one is totally different. Everyone has different voices. Uh, so it's all about kind of unlocking what the playwright's rhythmic intention was for me, mm. I think. So you're working on a solo piece right now and um, called Bonita, and you play multiple characters, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's so- seven different characters. Oh, cool. Okay, so how do you think about those rhythms? Like, if if the writer has a particular rhythm, but then each of the characters, I'm assuming, has different uh, maybe speech patterns or um, colloquialisms, how do you distinguish those characters when you're developing a solo piece? Yeah, totally. The, the play... Um... So there are seven characters and they all have very distinct voices and they all speak differently. Um, And what's cool about this piece, unlike other solo stuff that I've done, uh, this one, the characters really talk to each other. Oh, wow. In a lot of solo plays, it's, you know, kind of one monologue, one larger chunk where you're talking to an imagined scene partner, or you're talking to the audience as one character, but mm-hmm. these they'll have like a one word exchange back and forth arguments with each other. Um, so that has been like, how, how do I find separate enough voices that you can follow the story and know who is talking at what time. Mm. And that um, it's helpful to just kind of work technically with it, both physically and vocally um, shifting between the two. Wow. So how do you, I mean, how, for people who might not be familiar with that kind of work, can you just kind of map out, like, what are you doing on the first day of rehearsal as opposed to um, the final stages before you 
go in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. Like what's that process like of developing those characters? For, for me, a lot of the work that I've done, um, and I teach accents and dialects, um, and so kind of figuring out what the voice and dialect of the person is, uh, that's, that's really kind of a hook for me to get into the character. And then the mm-hmm. body sort of falls in place with it. Um, but, but it's a lot of trial and error too. Mm-hmm. So uh, jumping into to each of the character and kind of fully realizing them, you have to look at their givens, um, where they're from, what their socioeconomic background is, what their educational background is. And yeah, and then I just really start playing and trying different voices out with it. And then you start to kind of lock in on one or two. And then, um, and then I like to find the biggest difference between two characters that I can go. And then Mm -hmm. maybe I go to those extremes and then start to soften it out a little bit and, and kind of smooth out the edges. So it's not so jarring the differences between these characters and they would still be able to live within the same world. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a lot of just playing and throwing stuff up at the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm. And Oh yeah. It's a lot of failing and, sucking (laughs) (laughs) and then just getting back up and just trying something again have you had experience writing your own solo show i i have written kind of shorter solo pieces i studied at the academy of performing arts in prague for a little bit and um they have a whole uh school they're called, uh, it's a master's in authorial acting. That's the program there. So it's all about writing your own solo pieces. Um, I didn't actually finish out the program. So I didn't uh, fully realize the piece there. But uh, I did start working on a couple of new pieces with, uh, I took a class from Seth Barish at the Barrow Group. And that was a really, really cool experience because so much of my work uh, with solo stuff has been other people's words. So now mm-hmm. here I'm starting at the very beginning. And he brought up things that I hadn't even thought of as an actor with solo performance as I'm approaching it with writing. And it, that is, you have to be aware of the audience from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It, it As you're writing, you have to think think about them as your other scene partner. And I, you know, you've got the fourth wall with a lot of plays, but with solo work before I kind of called it the fourth screen where I was like, I'm Mm -hmm. sort of looking out at the audience and talking to my imaginary scene partner, but I'm, I'm avoiding looking an audience member directly in the eye and, and Mm -hmm. talking to them. But he, he talked about like, We'll get rid of that screen and see what comes out if you really utilize what's coming from the audience. And that that was a really cool exercise that I had never played with before. That's really cool. And I'm wondering if you have other examples of how um, working as an actor informs your writing or vice versa, what crossovers you see 
from being from wearing both hats yeah well for me with I I think I told you this Sam um I want to be a writer a whole lot more than I want to write (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I, I just wanted I wanted to be good out of the gate right um and and really uh becoming disciplined is a big challenge for me um so and and I don't necessarily have a huge desire to write something that I'm not going to then directly perform. Uh-huh. Um, so what I've done uh, with getting my own work up on its feet is just the most important thing for me is having a deadline of a performance coming up because there's nothing like knowing that your ass is going to be out there in front of a whole bunch of people to, uh, to light a fire into you so yeah. to have something to show. And then you're automatically getting feedback from the audience and you kind of see, oh, maybe this worked. Uh, maybe that didn't. Um, and you're getting the direct feedback as you're working. Uh, so, yeah, just giving yourself a deadline for me is is the biggest. Yeah, definitely. Well, and when you were talking earlier about trying a bunch of things and sucking a lot (laughs) and failing a lot. I mean, I just, that's something I tell my writing students all the time is that the first thing you write is going to be bad. That's okay. It's a first draft. Um, So I think there's a lot to learn from that, from that process. There is a poet laureate that had a line that I loved so much. It was like, I think it was every person is born with a hundred bad poems. And high school, is a, <laughs> high school is a pretty good time to get those out. <laughs> Just get them out like, of the way. Get yeah. them out of your system. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I've got tons of bad, bad writing in me. And I just, I got to give myself the time and the permission to get it out and not, um, and not be good right away. So I guess this kind of leads to just creative work in general, uh, do you have any special rituals or to get your creative juices flowing? Like I do love um, the artist's way, mm-hmm. the, oh, the yeah. morning pages. <clears throat> Those have mm-hmm. been so great. So it's the idea that you wake up every single morning and before you do anything, before you go to the bathroom, before you get a cup of coffee, you just write three pages and it can be whatever about your dream. It's, it's, totally just a free write. And I love doing that because I feel like I've accomplished something before I've done anything with my day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even if I'm not writing the rest of the day, I've, I've done one thing towards it. I've, I've gotten these words out and, and I find that it actually, um, it, makes me want to to get up and go and try something mm. new. No, I love that one. It reminds me of um I can't remember who said this. Oh, Gary Garrison. He's a playwright. I took a workshop with him once and he the first thing he said was get up every day thinking today I am a writer. No matter what else is going on in your life. Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you you know work in a restaurant or whatever, but if you can get up every day and say, today I am a writer, 
first, that you're kind of holding that as a lens through which you see everything else you're doing. Um, it can be a shift in your whole mm. mentality. That's awesome. I really like that. I wonder what my th- first thoughts are. I usually just like wake up and <laughs> like gotta start my day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I used to um I remember there was one summer right after I graduated college and you know things just weren't going well. I didn't have any creative projects lined up. I was so poor. You know, I wasn't dating anybody. My life was, my life is so hard. Um, (laughs) And, and my father could kind of sense that as I was calling him on the phone and just saying, this is all. And, and he said, okay, what you need to do is you need to switch your mind around. You need to shift it. Um, cause there's the, the Hamlet line, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so, Ah, uh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is just shift your mind around. So he goes, you are allowed to be as sad and depressed as you want to for the rest of the day. But tomorrow you get up in the morning and you say, what wonderful things are going to happen to me today? Uh-huh. That's so and cool. Then, you know, it's a little, it's a little woo-woo, <laughs> but yeah. I love it. But it was phenomenal. Like the thing that happened the next day freaked me out. I I just switched my mind around and then the good things came. I got like three paychecks in the mail that day. I got what? a phone call. I got offered two different shows that day. I started dating someone that day that I met in the evening. Like it was that's amazing and so I go oh well shoot I'm gonna keep doing this um and you know after a while the practice kind of dries up and you're kind of Mm -hmm. anticipating and looking for it but just kind of practicing switching your mind around has been has been super Mm -hmm. helpful for me I love that yeah and then it gives you a, a, a lens through which to see everything that happens yeah well and welcome the good as opposed Mm -hmm. to assume the bad Mm -hmm. terry here's a here's a question for you how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century today in the age of trump and climate change i don't know i'm just throwing things out there This with all yeah technology absolutely AI with all that's happening right now and in the coming decade what does it mean to be an artist? Oh God, that's a great question. Um, and luckily, I have a very easy answer for it. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I think as an artist, it's really important to be a good listener, a good empathizer, and then react mm. to to what you hear and what you see. Um, but always empathizing with everyone's different perspective. And empathizing being very different from sympathizing, I can, you know, 
sympathy, my understanding of it is like feeling bad or sorry for a person. But empathizing is putting yourself within their shoes to see the world through their eyes. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's a practice and, and we can make it a more active practice because it's really, really easy to get into arguments with people. Um, and right now it, it kind of feels like if I'm not angry all the time, then I'm not paying attention. Right. Right. Um, right. So, so I, I'm trying to practice empathy with as many people as I can, especially the people that I fundamentally disagree with. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I'm going to end up agreeing with them, but mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes it it makes it a little easier to handle some stuff because you say we are all human trying to make our way in this world. But then it's all frustrating too, right? Because you want to shake them and go, "What? What the fuck are you doing?" Um, yeah. Do you think the artist in a society has a particular responsibility to do that kind of empathizing? Uh, I think so. Or a particular, I don't know, ability? Um, I think just fundamentally as humans, we need to be practiced mm-hmm. a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening too. And listening not just to wait for a moment for ourselves to be able to talk again, but like really hearing what people are saying. Yeah. Um, because the only one that's going to be able to change uh, ourselves is ourselves, you know? And, and, and people learn by watching mm-hmm. and let people have the discovery that is the catalyst for the change within themselves. So I think showing things um, mm-hmm. can help uh, promote change, but people have to want to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. Did that answer it? Absolutely. Okay. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah. I, I, I'm always thinking about like social media in general and technology, how by design it's all about, pay attention to me, you know? And so it's like, how do you reverse (laughs) that? (laughs) Because all the time, it's like, I feel like I'm having to reverse my mentality all the time. Totally. Well, and it's it's really hard to stand out now, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much content being put out there. And it's all, um, a lot of that is about a desired perception, you know? This is what I want people to think about me. But right. you know who you are inside. And you know if you're just trying to present something to get a reaction. I don't know. Social media and I do not carpool well together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I have such a hard time with it because I, I just – I don't know how to do it. I don't know what a hashtag is. I'm still calling it a pound sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I also think that that's that's part of why it's really fun and interesting doing theater right now at a time where we are so connected but removed from each other because this is a time where you turn off the phone and you sit here in a room with other people doing the same thing 
at the same time, all watching a piece together. And and you can't get distracted because that's that's what I see a lot of social media is is distraction, right? And it's right. Uh, pulling away from another focus. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why I probably don't have a great discipline with writing is I get really distracted very easily by that. But um, giving yourself a focused amount of time, I think, is mm. important. Yeah, just to watch something for two hours yeah. seems really kind of radical. Yeah. I mean, does, do you mind if I ask you two a question? Sure. So, yeah, so as playwrights, do you do you find yourselves writing shorter pieces because you're concerned about uh, audience uh, attention spans? Or do you, mm. or are you going to write a six hour show and, and jam the whole story in and we're going to create this huge epic adventure? Or would you, would you worry about avoiding that because you're worried about your audience? Mm. I think that's a really good question. I think I'm, I'm always worried about, is somebody going to produce this, you know? Uh-huh. Um, maybe even before I think about, would the audience sit there and watch it? I mean, I have a play that I've been working on for a couple of years now that feels like a really, really big story. And I've been trying to fit it into the kind of, you know, hour and a half maybe hour 45 framework and and maybe it it needs to be like a three-hour play but that feels very um mm. overwhelming <laughs> mm. yeah it's it's knowing that you're asking a lot from an audience it's asking a lot yeah, yeah. Let's see you what know about you sarah i always i i feel like i always wrote my plays a little on the short side wanting to write longer but just like unable to for some reason um but i mean that's mm-hmm. why i feel like i really found a home in sketch comedy because it's three to four minutes and so like i feel really like mm-hmm. at ease when i write sketch comedy more than when i write a play because the the rules are like designed that shorter the better (laughs) so that for me I kind of like so for me it's like I work fast and then like I write fast and that's what I like to do and then I love sketch comedy that sense um but yeah I but I'm trying to figure I guess what I've been trying to like articulate for myself is how do I translate that pacing of like that speed and all that into a but in like 90 minutes, you know, like try to, or a longer, whatever Mm -hmm. that length may be. Um, Anything that's longer than 60 minutes, really. Because I always, for some reason, I'm like, the end. Now, how many pages did I write? Oh, what, 58? (laughs) Why did it feel like I've been on this for a marathon? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes it's just the stamina as a writer of, you know, yeah. Keeping going with a story. Yeah. I wonder sure. if it's also like what is mm-hmm. what type of story? What is a story that you want to tell that requires the time that it needs to tell it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you have you ever tried doing 
doing a five-hour epic piece? <laughs> I haven't. But maybe this winter. I think I. Why don't you? I just, feel like this winter. Why don't you I edit do that. that out? I totally. I love such it. A random no, I. I love it. I love it. It's a great idea. I saw a five-hour play in Chicago a few years five ago. Five hours. Um, and there there were two intermissions. Yeah, it was a five-hour. Did they provide lunch? <laughs> um. No, they did not. I think it started like it was an mm. evening show. Um, it was something like six to 11 or something like that, but. Well, you talked about, um, Taylor Max 24 hour piece. Yes. (gasps) That was amazing. My friend just went and saw that in Berlin and I'm sitting there looking at all of his social media posts about it. Yeah. Like this looks like such an incredible experience. Yeah. At that show, um, we did get, um, I'm trying to, so it started at noon. So we got dinner. And then we got a midnight soup <laughs> snack. And then we got breakfast. And also in the lobby, there were all kinds of, you know, expensive but delightful things you could, concessions you could buy at any time during the 24 hours. And also people brought food with them, you know. And also all kinds of um, substances as well. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looked very colorful and alive with detail. Yeah, I feel yeah. like if people can stand yeah. for a 12-hour music festival, they should be for five hours. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, totally. Totally, right? I did see um, in Seattle there's a company called Book It Repertory Theater, and they adapt books to the stage. Um, so the characters say both the narration and the dialogue. Oh, cool. It's a really, really cool style. And I did uh, the production of the Cider House Rules, and that was two parts, but then we would do a marathon. So it was about a six-hour play. Um, but they also did a production of Cavalier and Clay, Whoa. that book. Such a great book, and it just spans so much time. And that was always done in one day. And I think that was a five-and-a-half-hour play. And you know when people say, oh, but the time just flew by. And you're like, yeah, right. Um, it was, it was like no time had passed. You're just so in this world and you're so invested and you're just waiting for the next thing to happen. Wow. And, and it was kind of cool. Like knowing that these other people in the audience, they're going into it with you. Yeah. It was super exciting. Yeah. That's good writing. I think it's gotta be good writing if it's going to make people feel more pulled forward than Mm -hmm. aware of time passing. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I guess we'll before we jump into glistens, we'll ask our final question. Um, what advice would you give to our listeners who maybe not just playwriting, but you know, who who really wants to do theater and there's like, how do I start? Where do I even begin? Where do, what what is the first thing I should be asking or um that one thing that I think is really, really important to remember is um, there is no such thing as the best. Like you're never going to be the very best. Mm. There is mm-hmm. always someone out there that is going to be smarter, more talented, prettier than you, 
So trying to work towards being the best in relation to other people is where death lives, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just going to drive you crazy. And, and you don't need to put all that energy in comparison because, I mean, best has to do with taste, right? And every single person has a different taste. And not everybody likes every dish. Uh, some things speak more to other people and trying so hard to make yourself palatable for everyone just takes away all of your own power Mm -hmm. so I think the biggest thing is just give yourself the gift of working hard and doing the best that you can do in any given moment but taking away um comparisons to other people and their work uh, is going to be a much more freeing world. It's it's going to open up a lot more things Mm. for you. Um, I don't know. And and it's, it's also, it's a practice too, because, you know, you see someone really succeeding over here and you go, Oh damn it. But you don't know the work that it took to get to the place that they're at. Right. Um, so yeah, just give yourself the gift of, of not worrying about being perfect, being good, being the best, just getting better. And, and always, that. and always being a student of the work, uh, student of the work. Uh, like, but yeah, um, you're never stopping learning with this. Mm-hmm. There's always something else to gain from from watching other artists from listening to other uh writers work and 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 also figuring out what your Mm -hmm. own taste is too and the second that we think we have reached perfection we burst into a brilliant ball of light and escape off the face of the planet right there's no such thing as (laughs) as perfect so um i think i'll just keep them figuring it out as we're going along I love that. Because everybody, everybody's making it up as they're going along. Nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, where can our listeners find you? Um, I do have a website that I should update, uh, and I will um, tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, www.terryweekend.com. Um, I have... I have the Instagrams. Uh, I'm TV's Playhouse at, <laughs> at Instagram. Um, and then uh, also uh, the United Solo Festival that's happening. Um, they, have a, they have a whole website there. So it's, I think it's just unitedsolo.com. And the show itself is called Bonita. And Bo is spelled, uh, Bonita is spelled B-O hyphen N-I-T-A. Excellent. So listeners, if you live in New York, you should check that out November 6th and 9th. And if you have a theater around the country, we're actually talking about uh, taking Bonita on tour next year. Cool. That's kind of a hope of ours. So if people are like, I have a theater and I'm interested in bringing in a show, call me. Yeah. Great. You heard her, folks. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) All right. It's Glisten's time. I, should we have a theme song for Glisten's? 
Yes, I think we should. Do you have an idea? Do, 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 do. Glistens. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. I'm That's into really it. good. I'm into um, it. Yeah, so Glistens. It's, uh, we take this opportunity to sort of just reflect something that popped out at you over the week. Um, it could be literally anything that kind of stuck with you. Maybe it had made an impression on you. Um, we talked about literally almost everything, anything. Um, so I guess I could start. Uh, so yeah, let's uh, hear it. October 31st uh, was the anniversary of me and my fiance when we first met. <laughs> it was so cute. We had dinner and a movie. Um, but that wasn't the highlight. The highlight was actually the movie. <laughs> um, we saw the movie Parasite. Do you, have you guys heard of this movie? No. I've heard about it, but you're yeah. supposed to go in yeah, blind, and I think the right? trailer does a good job not really sharing too much what it's about. But it's phenomenal. It's so well written, so well directed. It's Korean, like me. And... <laughs> Is it's it, not is scary. It a scary no, I thought it was going to be a horror. I was expecting that, but it's more of like a, sus, uh, a thriller, like suspense kind of movie, a uh, bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's really good. I just could all day yesterday. I just could not stop thinking about the writing, and I had to like Google like you know, like is there a, a script uh, of this on PDF so I could read it? I did find it. It's all in Korean. I need to purchase it. Uh, it was so interesting. It was like a Korean screenplay. It looks a lot like a play. I thought it was oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, That's the way cool. it's written. Yeah, I was like, huh, this is more like a play than a screenplay. Um, but yeah, I yeah, I highly recommend everyone watch cool. it. All right, Sarah, can I ask you one quick question? Yeah. So you and your fiance, you met on Halloween. Mm-hmm. What were you wearing <laughs> when you first met? What was your costume? <laughs> oh, no, we didn't dress up. No, it was like our first date. And Halloween night was just the night that worked out for our schedules. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so we just dressed as ourselves. This is your last This is your last um, anniversary before you're, you yeah. get married. Yeah, it is. Oh, congratulations. Then you'll have two anniversaries. I would like two anniversaries, but... Uh, or you can get married on Halloween. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, that'd be nice. It's too late. We already booked cool. the venue. <laughs> booked the venue, the save the dates are out. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, excellent question, Terry. Um, what is your glisten? Um, I was thinking about my glisten this week. Uh, and. I I was thinking, so I'm down in Florida right now uh, working on Bonita because we're about to take it to the, to the solo fest. So we've been rehearsing it down here. And um, my husband was up in Brooklyn. He's a tattoo artist up in Brooklyn. And he said on Sunday night, he goes, you know what? I think I'm going to buy a plane ticket to Florida. I'm going to come visit you. So he came down and um, he's, he's always been very, very helpful when uh, especially with learning lines and, and with the creative process of a show, because I turned into a basket case and he's really, really great at calming me down and talking me off of the ledge. 
but I've, I've really been thinking about your creative champions and the people that support mm-hmm. you and believe in you, um, even when you can't do it for yourself. And, and yeah, it's just kind of nice thinking about all the people over the years that have really um, helped me out. And my husband, Adam, being one of them. Another is Summer Dawn Wallace, who's a uh, co-artistic director of Urbanite Theater. And we're working on this um, new mounting of Bonita together. She's just been awesome and has welcomed me into her home. And we've had so much fun this week. But I also, you know, I have to thank my cat Clementine Fandango. <laughs> <laughs> she supports me. I love that idea of creative mm, champions. That's and, really and how can we do it for other people as well? Yeah. 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 So that's what that's what I've been thinking about. Cool. Sam? Um, all right. Well, my lesson is I just got the book, um, The Secret Commonwealth, which is the second book in Philip Pullman's series, The Book of Dust. He wrote um, the Golden Compass books a long time ago, although they were actually, the first one was called The Northern Lights in England, but American publishers thought that Americans wouldn't know what that was. So they called it The Golden Compass. Um But anyway, I just started reading it. It's so good. It's really cool to read a book that you've been waiting for since you were like, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. Um, And I highly recommend all of these books. They really do hold up. Um, I think they're just as enjoyable as an adult as when I was a young person and that's really, really rare, I think. So yeah, that's my lesson. All right. I'm writing the name down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. They have things like it's so uh, I could talk for hours about this and I won't, but um, I'll just throw out some words, witches, armored bears, magic, other worlds. All right. Let's cue the music. everybody. <laughs> Let's take it up. <laughs> Terry, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you.